Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We find ourselves this morning in the section of Paul's letter where he's making preparations for his imminent return to Corinth. In a sense, this entire letter has been preparatory for Paul's third visit to the Corinthian congregation. Before this letter, Paul had written the severe letter just after his second sorrowful visit when he discovered the extent of the damage that was done by the intruding false apostles. And so he, he wrote that severe letter, he says in chapter 2, verse 4, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, calling them to repent and, and to, to turn from their distrust of him, to repent of their naive infatuation with the fleshly triumphalism of the false apostles and to repent of their willingness to compromise the gospel. Well, one of the things that we learned from this letter is that, by and large, the severe letter worked. Chapter 7 tells us that Titus delivered the severe letter to the Corinthians and he witnessed the grace of God at work in their hearts as the great majority of the congregation did repent of those things. And Paul rejoices, not that they were made sorrowful, he says, but that their sorrow led them to genuine repentance to the point that he concludes chapter 7, verse 16, by saying, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. And so in the first seven chapters of, of this letter, Paul vindicates his character against the accusations of the false apostles. And in the face of questions of his own apostolic authenticity, he lays out an extended definition and description of new covenant gospel ministry. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he addresses this newly repentant Corinthian congregation with respect to the offering that he was organizing for the poverty-stricken church in Jerusalem. This is something the Corinthians had begun preparing for far before all this conflict with the false apostles had arisen. And so now that, now that the majority of the church has gotten past those issues, Paul urges them to follow through to completion their plans for that offering. He tells them Titus and two other brothers are going to go to Corinth ahead of him. They're going to gather the offering. And so he prepares them for that upcoming visit. And then in chapters 10 to 13, Paul sets his sights on the false apostles themselves as well as on an obstinate, unrepentant minority of the church that still lies under the spell of these heretical imposters. See, the majority of the church repented when Titus delivered the severe letter and, and ministered among them. But heresy always dies hard, and Paul knew that. And so in chapters 10 to 13, he addresses his opponents head on, exposing them as servants of Satan himself, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And he forcefully rebukes the unrepentant minority of Corinthians for failing to make a clean break from these false teachers, while at the same time imploring and entreating them like a father does to wayward children to once and for all repudiate their Judaizing triumphalism and return to faithfulness to the true gospel and faithfulness to him, Christ's true apostle. And in the middle of chapter 12 through to the end of chapter 13, Paul begins to bring his letter to a close and he makes several references to his upcoming return to Corinth. In chapter 12, verse 14, he says, here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you. In verse 20, he says, when I come, verse 21, when I come again. 
Chapter 13, verse 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. And then in verse 10, he says, for this reason, I'm writing these things while absent so that when present, I need not use severity. So this section of the letter is particularly aimed at preparing the Corinthians, especially the yet unrepentant Corinthians, for Paul's third visit. He writes as he does now so that they can take the necessary actions and make the necessary changes ahead of time. This way, when Paul shows up in person, it'll be a pleasant reunion rather than a difficult conflict. Well, as Paul prepares himself for this third visit, he recognizes that it may very well be that difficult conflict is unavoidable. These sheep have been straying. His dear spiritual children whom he's betrothed to one husband, he says in chapter 11, verse 2, whom he desires to present as to Christ as a pure virgin, they are flirting with committing spiritual adultery. And in our passage this morning, we see Paul, the faithful, loving pastor, aiming to shepherd his sheep in the midst of relational conflict, of doctrinal infidelity, and of moral compromise. So follow along as I read our text, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 19, through to chapter 13, verse 4. Paul says, all this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I've previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him. Yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. And so in this text, we get a glimpse of what faithful ministry in the midst of conflict looks like. And this is instructive for us because, as I've said so many times throughout our study of 2 Corinthians, each and every one of us has been called to ministry. Each one of us has been called to lay our lives down in the service of, of Christ and His church, in the ministry to one another, to give ourselves unrelentingly to the task of building up the body of Christ, as Ephesians 4 says, by the proper working of each individual part. We are to pray for one another. We are to serve one another. We are to meet one another's needs, and we're to come alongside one another and in the battle against sin and in the fight for righteousness by faith and strengthen one another's hands. 
And as we seek to be faithful to that ministry, Grace Life, we will face conflict because we are not called to minister to the perfect Christians. We are called to minister to the sinners, to people like us, to people who are not yet perfected, people who still have sin to mortify and righteousness to pursue and put on. And so we need to know what faithful ministry looks like in the midst of relational conflict, in the midst of doctrinal infidelity, in the midst of moral compromise, because that's what we're living with here with one another. And we have an example here modeled for us by the Apostle Paul. In the verses we've just read, we behold less, no less than eight elements of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict. Eight elements of, min, of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict. And as we work through these, it's my prayer that we will be equipped to faithfully serve the body even when things get difficult. Well, that first element of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict comes early in verse 19, and that is, number one, that faithful ministry in the midst of conflict is conducted in the fear of God, conducted in the fear of God. Paul says, all this time you've been thinking we're defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. And so as the Corinthians hear this letter being read aloud for the first time, by the time they get midway through chapter 12, at least some of them are going to hear it as Paul's own self-defense and self-vindication in light of the charges of the false apostles. And there's a sense in which that's true. It's what it is. But they might get the idea that they have successfully placed the Apostle Paul on trial before them and have subjected him to a, a painful and, and embarrassing cross-examination. And so Paul anticipates that misunderstanding and disabuses them of it. The, the NAS renders that, renders that verse as a statement, but it's identical in form to a question, and, and other translations take it that way. They say, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? No, dear friends, I've committed no crime that warrants being brought before the bar of your judgment. And even if I had, I'm accountable not ultimately to you, but to God himself. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. In other words, more important than your judgment of me is God's judgment of me. He is my judge. It is at his bar that my soul is laid bare and is examined according to perfect righteousness. And Paul said something very similar in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, where he told them, to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. The one who examines me is the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, Our proud confidence before the omniscient gaze of God's holiness is the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And then in chapter 4, 
Verse 2, he says, But we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Paul cared, what the, cared about what the Corinthians thought of him, but only because their reception of him affected their reception of the gospel. Not because he was self-conscious and personally invested in his own reputation before them, before men. Paul lived above that. He was not a slave to the fear of man. He lived above being consumed by what people thought of him. Well, you know, I, I mean, I know that that's the right thing to do, but if I do that, you know, what, what are they going to think of me? <clears throat> maybe they'll think I'm foolish or maybe they think I'm wrong or hot-headed or, or timid or whatever. None of that mattered because Paul was intimately aware of the fact that the faithful minister lives his entire life before the open face of God always in his presence and subject to his constant evaluation and assessment. And there is no higher standard. Paul didn't need to be concerned about man's evaluation of him because he always served with the highest level of accountability because he never lost sight of the truth of Hebrews 4.13 that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And this is indispensable for us, friends, if we're going to be faithful to serve the body in the midst of conflict, because the flesh dies hard. And when being faithful to the ministry that Christ has called you to requires you to take aim at one another's sins, at one another's flesh, it can get pretty ugly pretty quickly. Egos are wounded. Pride is hurt. And all of a sudden, accusations start getting hurled around. And in those moments, we cannot conduct our ministry in the fear of man driven by merely human estimations of our conduct. We must have it settled long before we face those conflicts to conduct our ministry in the fear of God, to have an audience of one over and against all the criticism of men and over and against all the praise of men. We must reckon God and God alone to be our judge. And so, his word and his word alone will be the rule of our lives and our ministries. We will not benefit the body of Christ by being fearful of them more than fearful of God. And that speaking of benefiting the body brings us to a second element of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict that we see in this text. That is number two, it is driven by the edification of the body driven by the edification of the body. Again, verse 19, all this time you've been thinking we're defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So in the first place, Paul sought to correct a, a false impression that the Corinthians may have had, namely that Paul was defending himself to them and, and not speaking in the sight of God. Well, here he corrects a second false impression that his defense and vindication of his ministry has been driven by selfish motives. He says, 
my design in speaking as I have hasn't been to win a debate or to clear my name or to preserve my reputation. My design this entire time has ever and only been for your edification. I only want to see you built up and to be mature in Christ. And that means that you can't be dallying with this false teaching. And so, yes, I've defended myself, but I am after your growth, not my glory. And this emphasis on edification is evident throughout the entire letter. Back in chapter 10, verse 8, he said, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I won't be put to shame. And then he'll say the same thing as he brings the letter to a close in chapter 13, verse 10. For this reason, I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not tearing down. See, the apostolic authority that Christ gave to Paul wasn't so that he could domineer and tyrannize and subjugate and destroy the people of God. The whole reason Christ called Paul as an apostle was to build up his body. As he said back in chapter 1, verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. My entire life is dedicated to increasing your joy in Jesus so that as you delight more and more in him, you will delight less and less in sin. And so you'll be built up, you'll be edified in Christ. And friends, that is what our lives need to be dedicated to. This is what ministry is most fundamentally. It is the laying down of our lives. It is sacrificing our comforts. It's being willing to endure all manner of hostility and conflict and difficulty so that we can increase one another's joy in Christ so that we can display Jesus as glorious, as beautiful, as sweet, as satisfying, so that he can be seen and enjoyed for who he is, and so that worship and honor unto him would overflow unto the edification of his people. Grace Life, is that what drives you? Is, is your ministry to your brothers and sisters at Grace Community Church driven by the edification of the body? If it's not, if you're more concerned about being thought well of or, or not making waves or being polite or not becoming like one of those weird super spiritual types, if you're concerned about your reputation or your comfort or your ease, you will not be faithful to your ministry. You won't be bothered with the discomfort of awkward conversations or the difficulty of early morning commitments to bring refreshments or to serve in the nursery or to give someone a ride to church. You won't subject yourself to the pain of being misunderstood when you try to lovingly bring correction to your brothers and sisters and then they respond to you as if, you're just a puffed-up, holier-than-thou, judgmental, angry person. But if you're driven by the edification of the body, you will do whatever needs to be done at whatever cost to yourself to minister faithfully in the midst of conflict, in the midst of a fallen brethren and sistren in Christ.
Well, there's a third element of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict. Not only is it conducted in the fear of God and driven by the edification of the body, but because it's driven by the edification of the body, it is also, number three, committed to faithful accountability. Committed to faithful accountability. And we see this in verses 20 and 21. He says, For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over those, many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they've practiced. See, Paul is concerned to do what he can so that this third visit to Corinth will go much more pleasantly than his second visit to Corinth. And though he will not shy away from the conflict if the edification of the body depends on it, there's nothing in him that relishes conflict. He takes no delight in having to plunge into difficulty and to awkwardness and attention. And so naturally, he wants to do everything in his power to make this impending visit as enjoyable as it can be for both him and the Corinthians. And that meant taking the opportunity to confront sin head on in this preparatory letter so that they could make the necessary changes before he got there. He voices his concern that if this obstinate pocket of the Corinthian church doesn't change course and repent, he won't find them as he wishes to find them. He, he, that is, making progress in grace, being conformed to the image of Christ, growing in sanctification. Instead, he'll find them weighed down by the deeds of the flesh. And what follows are a couple of lists of two broad categories of sins, <clears throat> sins that you'd expect to be plaguing a church who's infatuated with false teaching and is skeptical of the true gospel of Christ. The first is a list of sins of relational conflict that undermine the unity of the church. Look at these. Strife speaks of discord, of quarreling, of contention, unavoidable given the wiles of the false apostles. Jealousy is that party spirit, that self-centered narrowness that's, that's suspicious of those outside of one's faction. Angry tempers refers to outbursts of anger that fuel rivalries. Disputes are those rivalries. They're the, the unnecessary bickering with one another that is opposed to the preservation of unity in the spirit of the bond of peace. Slanders and gossip, there's an obvious pair, both denoting evil speaking, slander, speaking of open public vilification, gossip, speaking of secret attacks on a person's character, derogatory information about someone that's offered in a tone of confidentiality. And these kinds of conflicts and quarrels that are taking place in Corinth cannot survive without these two ingredients, slander and gossip. Nor can they survive without arrogance. Fusiosis means a puffing up, a swelling. It refers to having an inflated view of yourself, of thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, and therefore acting in accordance with that failure of self-knowledge. And disturbances, that speaks of the disorder, confusion, and tumultuousness that marks mob riots. 
This is what Paul fears he'll find on his third visit to Corinth unless they make a significant course correction. And then in verse 21, there's another set of sins. The former struck at the church's unity. These sins undermine a church's purity. He says impurity, akatharsia. It's the general word for anything that was filthy or dirty. It was used in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the concept of what it was to be morally or ceremonially unclean. This is uncleanness. It's often paired with the next word, immorality. This is that word porneia, from which we get the word pornography. It speaks of any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul told this congregation with frank simplicity, flee immorality. Just run from it. Say, why? Because he says, every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And then sensuality, asel geia. This emphasizes the lack of restraint upon sexual sin. This is flagrant, unbridled, shameless licentiousness. This is the kind of recklessness that people abandon themselves to when social and religious norms mean nothing to them anymore. And it's this kind of pagan immorality that the Corinthians were saved out of. And apparently some of them had begun to be ensnared once again by the sins that characterized the wicked culture around them. And what's interesting about this is, is that as we've navigated our way through 2 Corinthians, we've and the, seen the issues that Paul's facing with this church. We might have expected the first list, right? The sins of relational conflict that undermine unity. But we haven't heard very much at all about these sins of moral impurity. And so this is a bit surprising to see. Unless you recognize that the doctrinal and attitudinal sins that plagued Corinth are the soil in which sexual immorality grows. That's an important connection. It is never long before the doctrinal and spiritual defection in a congregation that tolerates false teaching, it's never long before that defection manifests in weakened morality in that same congregation. Why? Because the foundation for our right living is our right doctrine. The gospel grounds our lives. And so if we are off on our doctrine and are letting ourselves go astray in our own hearts and our own attitudes, it's not long before the flesh follows in actions. And so, just as a parenthesis, when you are learning the truth, when you're meditating on doctrine, when you're understanding biblical teaching, when you are working on your own internal attitude, you are preventing your eventual moral defection. You're sowing to the spirit rather than to the flesh. It's not just an academic exercise. Doctrine always affects life. Now, what do we learn from all this? Why do I say that these verses teach us that faithful ministry in the midst of conflict is committed to faithful accountability? Because Paul names the Corinthians specific sins. He calls them out on the carpet. He doesn't deal in vague generalities because, you know, he's shy about embarrassing people. He doesn't say, come on, guys, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you're dealing with a lot of issues. You know, you're, you're dealing with some, with some unfaithfulness in some significant areas. You know, you need, to, you need to clean up your act before I get there. You know what I'm talking about? Wink, wink. 
No, he lists out their sins one by one. And then on top of that, he makes several references to his third visit, which will serve as their day of reckoning in these areas. Look at verse 20 again. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be what I wish and may be found by you not to be what you wish. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, I may mourn over those who haven't repented. He's letting them know that he's going to hold them accountable. He has named their specific sins. He is now saying, we are going to find out how you're doing when I see you in a few months. Don't think I'm just going to throw out a few flowery exhortations and forget about it. I'm going to check up on you. You're going to, to have to answer for your behavior. And friends, we desperately need to put this in practice with one another. Sometimes we can just be so polite. We don't want to have those awkward conversations. We don't want to name sin. We don't want to talk about being held accountable to one another. We're happy to just deal in vague generalities and trite cliches. Let our brothers and sisters be ravaged by their sin because we fear their frowns more than we love their souls. Paul refused to play church. He refused to just lob directives from afar, even though it meant wearying travel. And I'm not talking about travel across the 5 and 405, though that can be wearying. I'm talking about sea travel across the Aegean. I'm talking about the Appian Way, hundreds of miles of walking to get to his people because he was going to be personally involved so he could hold them accountable to the instruction they had received. And if we're going to minister faithfully to one another in the midst of sin and difficulty, we need to be committed to the same. We need to be committed to holding one another accountable. And that leads us very naturally to a fourth element of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict that we see in this text. That is, number four, it is invested in the lives of the brethren. Invested in the lives of the brethren. We see that particularly in verse 21, paying specific attention to the words Paul uses to describe himself at the thought of finding the Corinthians in a state of unrepentance. He says, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who've sinned in the past and not repented. Paul's saying that if he comes again and finds them yet unrepentant, he will be humiliated by it. And he'll mourn over their sin. Say, why should Paul be humiliated by their lack of repentance? He's not responsible for their sin. Well, no, the, the fault of their sin would be their own. But it's because Paul has so knit his heart to the Corinthians, because they are his spiritual children whom he had begotten in his ministry or missionary efforts, that for him, their success is his success. Their failure is his failure. We understand this. Just, just like a father is humiliated by the rebellion of his children, precisely because of how much he loves his children, precisely because of how profoundly he has invested his life in their lives, so is Paul so invested in the lives of the Corinthians that their sin is his humiliation. Their faith faithlessness is his grief. 
What did he say in chapter 11, verses 28 and 29? After cataloging all of his intense sufferings, he says, apart from such external things like imprisonment and stonings and beatings and being at night and the day in the sea, apart from all of that, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern, literally without my burning? Paul's heart was absolutely bound up in the Corinthian spiritual progress. Charles Hodge captured it this way. He wrote, nothing filled the apostles with greater delight than to see the churches of their care steadfast in faith and in obedience to the truth. And nothing so pained and humbled them as the departure of their disciples from the paths of truth and holiness. And even though we are not apostles, even though not all of us are pastors, the very same thing should be true of each and every one of us. Your hearts should be so invested in the spiritual well-being of the saints whom Christ has entrusted into your care. And who are they? They're the members of your local church. They should be, they should be so in your heart that their joys are felt as your joys, that their sorrows are felt as your sorrows, their shame, your shame, and their sin as your cause for humiliation and grief. When a brother or sister stumbles, you should feel it. You should feel it. It should affect you like it was a member of your own family, like it was your own son or daughter. And your response should be to seek out whatever means possible for you to be a blessing to that person, whether that means showing up and praying with them, whether that means weeping with them, whether it means accompanying them to the doctor appointment, or, or even if it means getting in their face and calling out their sin and holding them accountable. We need to be invested in the lives of the brethren. Well, faithful ministry in the midst of conflict is conducted in the fear of God, driven by the edification of the body, committed to faithful accountability, invested in the lives of the brethren. It is also, number five, devoted to believing the best. Devoted to believing the best. Once again, we see this by paying attention to the details of verses 20 and 21. Note how Paul speaks here. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be jealousy, strife, and so on. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over those who have not repented. You hear a degree of uncertainty there. See, Paul's attitude is not one of pessimistic resignation. He's not exhorting them to repent all the while in the back of his mind thinking, these dissolute fools aren't going to repent. I mean, I know I've got to go through the motions. I've got to give them a chance so that I can say I did when I see them, but I better gear up for a fight because there is no way they are going to be changing. That's not his attitude at all. Philip Hughes captures it well. He says, his spirit is that of a father's affectionate restraint who will not pass judgment until he's seen the situation for himself. He's unwilling, meanwhile, to adopt a tone of certainty regarding reports which have reached him, for he loves them and love hopes all things. 
He loves them. And as 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love believes all things and hopes all things. And so he takes no perverse delight in being able to lay the smack down as payback for all the grief they've caused him. No, he remains hopeful that he'll never have to deliver that discipline. He believes that the grace of God can so work in their hearts as to lead them to genuine repentance, just like it did the rest of the church, so that by the time he gets there, it's like a whole different church. That's what he's believing. That's what he's hoping. That's what he's trusting in the grace of Christ to do. Because faithful ministers are devoted to believing the best about their fellow believers, even in the midst of conflict. They remain resiliently optimistic about the Lord's grace at work in the lives of their brothers and sisters, even when those brothers and sisters don't deserve that optimism, because that confidence is not ultimately in their brothers and sisters. That confidence is in the sovereign grace of Christ who is at work within them. And so if you are going to serve your wayward brethren at all, If you're going to serve them well in the midst of conflict and difficulty, you need to be devoted to believing the best about them. You need to be possessed by this indomitable, unwavering, confident hope that God's grace is powerful to overcome sin in the lives of his people. You need to be marked by this intransigent optimism that the Holy Spirit can change hearts and subdue sin even in the most stubborn people. Because there's nothing more deflating, listen to this, there's nothing more deflating for someone who is genuinely battling their sin than to have those they care about and respect the most lose confidence in them and expect them to fail. If I'm stuck. If he believes I can't do it, I probably can't do it. If, if this is who I am in his eyes, this is who I am. See, your fellow believers need you, especially those who are laboring under the burden of sin, they need you to believe the best about them. They need you to know, they need to know that you don't think that they're a lost cause, that you have confidence that the grace of Christ is at work within them, that their sin is conquerable by the almighty King of grace himself. Friends, when sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And because grace abounds over sin, we can believe the very best of God's people because we believe the very best of God's sanctifying grace. There's a sixth element of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict. I want to mention it just briefly. Number six, it is aimed at genuine repentance. Aimed at genuine repentance. And we observe that throughout the entirety of the passage, but Paul mentions it explicitly toward the end of verse 21, where he says, I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they've practiced. Where there has been sin, faithful ministry always aims at genuine repentance. This is at the heart of a biblical understanding of church discipline. We don't confront people in their sin because we have a twisted desire to pluck specks from everyone's eyes while ignoring logs in our own. We don't beat people over the head with their sin as a way of insisting on their inferiority or our superiority. And we certainly don't practice church discipline as a means of retaliation or retribution for personal offenses. 
No, church discipline exists for the restoration of the one trapped in sin, the one refusing to repent. And that restoration happens upon repentance. Matthew 18, the, the ground zero of the church discipline passages, says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. To listen to someone who has shown you your fault is to confess your fault as sin and to repent of it. The parallel passage in Luke 17, 3 uses that language. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Repentance is always the goal. And so this is our aim in any confrontation of sin, whether it's step three before the entire church or even at step one between believers in private, which should be happening all the time. It's to get the brother or sister ensnared in the clutches of sin to confess their sin, to seek forgiveness where it's appropriate and to forsake their sin in genuine heartfelt repentance. We're not aiming at perfection in the, in the proper sense. We're not saying that unless you've lived a perfect life of holiness, you're going to be confronted. It's not that. It's not that, oh, you've done something wrong, you're out of here. It's that you won't let go. You've done something wrong, you've been confronted about it, but now you're obstinately doubling down and refusing to let go of that sin. And so our confrontation with one another is always not, hey, you weren't perfect. But hey, you sinned. Christ has died for sin. Repent of it. Let it go. Confess it. Forsake it. And find freedom. But when there is not genuine repentance, faithful ministry in the midst of conflict progresses, number seven, in accord with biblical discipline. It is in accord with biblical discipline. Look with me at verses one and two of chapter 13. Paul says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I've previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and those to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. So in the past, Paul has been lenient. Paul has been long-suffering. Paul has been urging and pleading with people to repent. But if there will not be repentance... There must be discipline. He begins by saying, this is the third time I'm coming to you. This is my third visit. The first is when he founded the church. He speaks about that, in, or we read about that in Acts 18 and 1 Corinthians 2. The second time was his painful visit where he discovered the mutiny taking place because of the false apostles. And we hear about that in 2 Corinthians 2. This is going to be the third visit. And then he quotes rather abruptly without any introduction, no, as it is written or the Spirit says, just Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he's committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. This was the Mosaic Law's standard for legal testimony in a judicial proceeding. It could not be that someone was condemned on the basis of the testimony of a single witness. Now, why is that? Because if that were the standard, it'd be too easy for a malicious person with a personal vendetta to destroy someone's life with a false accusation. And so the law requires at least two and preferably three witnesses to confirm the truth of a matter in which there are criminal penalties. You say, wait a minute. 
Won't that mean that there are offenders who perpetrate their crimes in secret? They'll get away with it? And Charles Hodge has a great comment in answer to that question. He writes, In the judgment of God, therefore, it is better that many offenders should go unpunished through lack of testimony than that the security of reputation and life should be endangered by allowing a single witness to establish a charge against any man. What a word that is for our culture today. You say, but won't that result in terrible injustice? I mean, how could God leave such criminals unpunished? Oh, he won't. They may go unpunished for a time in this life, but no one escapes the inflexible bar of God's justice. No one. And those who would violate this stipulation of the law of God because they think they care more about justice than God does would do well to remember that the judge of all the earth will deal justly, the, that vengeance is his, and that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished and can punish the guilty more exquisitely than any court of human justice could hope to do. Well, this standard for legal testimony is quoted several times in the New Testament as the protocol for church discipline. Matthew 18, 16, after there's been private rebuke for sin, Jesus says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that, and then he quotes Deuteronomy 19, 15, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Also in 1 Timothy 5, 19, Hebrews 10, 28, that verse is referred to. So Paul cites this classic text on church discipline, and he says, this is going to be my third visit. When I was there with you the second time, I warned you. Now these three visits are going to rise up and testify against you and confirm the matter of your unrepentant sin. And when that happens, I promise you, verse 2, I will not spare anyone. Listen to the severity of that. The word translated to spare is phaedomai. It originally referred to refraining from killing a defeated enemy on the battlefield. And so it eventually came to mean to be merciful toward. But what a picture. Back in chapter 1, verse 23, Paul said that it was to spare them that he delayed his planned visit to Corinth. Now he says... The time of forbearance has passed. Paul's coming again, and if they don't repent, he's going to assert the fullness of his apostolic authority in accord with biblical discipline. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 18 to 21. There he wrote, Now some of you have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You say, how, how could Paul speak this way? How could he speak this way to those whom he calls his children, those whom he calls beloved in verse uh, 19? And Calvin answers that question well. He says, as it is the part of a good parent 
to forgive and bear with many things, as Paul had done. So it is the part of a foolish parent and one that has no proper regard for the welfare of his children to neglect to use severity when there is occasion for it. Proverbs 13, 24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And so Paul says, the protocols have been followed. Your behavior has testified of itself before the whole church. And my three visits and my several warnings and my urgent pleadings for you to repent stand as witnesses against you. If there's no change by the time I get there, I will not spare anyone. Whoever does not repent will be excommunicated, will be expelled from the life of the church, will be refused to take communion, will be cut off from the fellowship of the redeemed because your conduct will have become indistinguishable from that of the enemies of Christ. You look like an unbeliever. I, I, you might be a believer. I don't know but I can't tell. This had to happen with the man who had his father's wife back in 1 Corinthians 5, where he said, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. To deliver one over to Satan is to put them out of the fellowship of the church. What a severe thing church discipline is and excommunication is if it can be, if it can be spoken of as being handed over to Satan. Or he does the same thing in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he says in 1 Timothy 1.20, he has handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And he says he will do the same with the Corinthians if there is not repentance. Well, we have seen that faithful ministry in the midst of conflict is conducted in the fear of God, number one. Number two, driven by the edification of the body. Three, committed to faithful accountability. Four, invested in the lives of the brethren. Five, devoted to believing the best. Sixth, aimed at genuine repentance. And now seventh, in accord with biblical discipline. The eighth and final element of faithful ministry in the midst of conflict comes in chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. And that is, it is shaped by the gospel of Christ. It is shaped by the gospel of Christ. Paul says, since you're seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. If this talk of church discipline, and excommunication, and sparing no one is shocking to you, if it seems to be a kind of a, a display of the kind of authority that Paul has been heretofore unwilling to display, that's the point. Because the Corinthians were demanding proof that Paul was genuinely Christ's apostle precisely because he had refused to assert his apostolic authority, but dealt with them in, as he says in chapter 10, verse 1, in, in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And they despised that meekness. Their unbiblical, their unbiblical triumphalism had so dominated their thinking that they judged Paul's meekness as weakness. They preferred the false apostles' aggressive authoritarianism. 
even, as we learn in chapter 11, verse 20, if it meant that they were enslaved and devoured and taken advantage of and smacked in the face. And Paul says, is apostolic power the proof you need for my apostleship? If you don't repent before this third visit, you'll have all the power you can handle. You say, wait a minute, hasn't Paul this whole time been talking about how the weakness of Christ's cross is the antidote to the triumphalism of the false apostles? How can he start talking about exercising power now? Well, he reminds them that Christ is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. The Corinthians were no strangers to divine power through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. The signs of a true apostle had been performed among them, verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12. Paul's message and his preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, 1 Corinthians 2. And that a church was ever planted in the middle of a city like Corinth was the clearest evidence that the power of God had worked among them, miraculously saving them out of rank paganism, idolatry, and immorality. Paul says that corresponds with the power of God. Yes, Christ was manifested in weakness among you. That weakness took him all the way to the cross, but the story doesn't end on Good Friday. There is Resurrection Sunday where the Christ who was crucified because of weakness rose again from the grave by the omnipotent power of God. And not only was he raised, but he presently lives to this day, having ascended to the right hand of his father and having been seated on his father's throne where he rules the world as its rightful Lord. And when Christ comes again, friends... He will not spare anyone. On that day, the day of mercy will have passed. The time for forbearance will be over. And where there has not been repentance, unrighteousness will be punished wherever it is found. As the King of kings and the Lord of lords will strike down his enemies with the sword of his wrath as he rules the nations with a rod of iron. And dear sinner, if you were here this morning and you are outside of Christ, if you, like the Corinthians, are still clinging to some sin that you refuse to repent of, I plead with you to repent this very moment. Let it go. Do not presume upon the mercy of Jesus. He is coming, and you cannot withstand him in the day of his wrath. The holy God must punish sin. He, he says it in his own name. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and grace, merciful, gracious, abounding in loving kindness. He says, but by no means will he leave the guilty unpunished. He will not. He will destroy the guilty eternally in the lake of fire. Dear sinner, your sin must be punished. But the good news is that in God's grace, he has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear the punishment for sinners. The innocent one was punished in the place of the guilty. On the cross, Jesus bore the sins of his people so that we who are guilty might justly be declared righteous. 
Our sins must be punished. Yes, but wonder of wonders, they may be punished in a righteous substitute. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we lay hold of that righteousness by trusting in Christ alone for that righteousness. So friend, turn from your sins. Trust in Christ this very moment and you will be forgiven. You will lay hold of that righteousness. Your sin will have been punished in the Savior and so will never be punished in you in hell. That is the free offer of the gospel. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, been clothed in his righteousness, note the lesson that this has for our ministry to one another. Our ministry is to be shaped by the gospel of Christ. In Paul's mind, the gospel was not just the message that got people saved. In Paul's mind, the gospel shaped his entire life and his entire ministry. When he considered the proper course of action in, in a given circumstance, he was thinking about the gospel, about the weakness of Christ in his incarnation and his crucifixion, and about the power of Christ in his resurrection and his ascension and his session. Then he was thinking about how do these truths apply to my everyday life? Will someone ask me for forgiveness? Well, I've been forgiven an incalculable debt. I'm, I could never forgive somebody for a greater debt than I've been forgiven, so I'll forgive them. That's the gospel applied to, to personal conflict. He says, I'm suffering. Well, Christ suffered. I'm not going to assume that I'm under God's discipline because I'm suffering because Christ suffered and he wasn't under God's discipline. God had a purpose for it. He had a redemptive purpose for it. And so I'm going to trust that my suffering only matches my Savior's suffering. Christ has been raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, then my life should look like newness of life. It should look like resurrection power. Paul was always seeking to bring the gospel to bear on every aspect in his life. What did he say to the Philippians? Chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in a way that tells the truth about the gospel even in your ministry to one another. Bring every aspect of your life, brothers and sisters, under the scrutiny of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that your life and ministry will be shaped by the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful how traveled plans and interpersonal conflicts between people 2,000 years ago is inspired by your Holy Spirit to bring benefit to the body of Christ now. And I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, for the way that you sustained him in the midst of conflict. Holy Spirit, for the way that you have breathed out these words for our understanding and growth and edification. We pray that we would be faithful ministers, faithful servants of the gospel as we serve one another in the body of Christ that we would be marked by all eight of these elements of faithful ministry, that we would serve one another faithfully in a way that, that makes much of you, that delights the heart of our Father, that makes much of the example of Christ, and, and that shows off the power of the Spirit in our lives. We pray that you would accomplish this in us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.